Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PML. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for that you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo back here with Sam Monson. Time to review all of week six, Sam. Almost all. Two games tonight. Yeah, it's always throwing us off with the double Monday night games. We'll get into all the action. But first, a quick note from our friends over at Monkey Knife Fight. It's an incredible deal. All first-time depositors at Monkey Knife Fight that put at least $20 into their account while, putting, while using promo code PFF will receive a free PFF Edge annual subscription. That's right, $40 of value for just 20 bucks, and you get the opportunity to turn that 20 into even more money playing daily fantasy and prop games. It's over at Monkey Knife Fight. So go to Monkey Knife Fight, deposit your $20, use the promo code PFF today, and receive a free PFF Edge annual subscription. A whole year for just 20 bucks, $40 value plus, you can win even more. And then you can also go to pristineauction.com. They're sponsoring the PFF NFL podcast today. Check out their daily auctions with $1 starting bids on over 8,000 football items up for auction. Pristine Auction guarantees authenticity on every product, and you can use the promo code PFF there for $10 off your first invoice. We're currently giving away a signed Jerry Rice jersey. Just rate and review the podcast. We'll be choosing a winner next week. Jerry Rice jersey Go check it out. So leave some sort of contact wherever you rate and review the podcast. Sam, let's get right into the week six action. I just love, I just love Monday mornings here. Yeah, I love it. There's okay. just so much to take in, so many new takes to spew out to the public. So let's get right into it. We're going in some kind of order based off the one o'clock games. The Washington football team and the New York Giants. The Giants are on the board, my friend. <laughs> they have a win. And the, look, if your favorite team is in the tank for Trevor sweepstakes, you know, we're going to talk a lot about maybe the future and what to, uh, 
what to build around. And both of these teams are very much in it. Riverboat Ron went for the win at the end and got Kyle Allen. See, yeah. the analytics, they, they can't take into account that your quarterback's Kyle Allen. And when he rolls to the left, he's just going to like, Bleh! They can't. They and, can't, and they can't account over. for that. Can't account for it. There's been a lot of this, you know, blanketed analytics can't do this or that yeah. lately. And we'll get into some more of it Well, in the next game, Houston and Tennessee. But. In, in case it wasn't clear, by the way, I'm, like this, I'm being facetious. In no way, like, if you've got one play to win the game or not, take it. Always. I don't know if it's always, but... Well, all right, one play, in, when, in the case of a two-point conversion, one play from the two-yard line to win the game, take it. I mean, I'm a fan, I'm a fan of that. We'll talk about it in the Houston Texans, uh, Houston-Tennessee game. I'm a fan of being one play away from yeah, victory. I mean, if it's fourth and 18 from your own 10-yard line, maybe not. But if it's, right. if it's one play from your opponent's two-yard line to win the game, right? Your options are kick the, kick the extra point, which is not a certainty anymore, you know, since they moved it back. Right. Kick the extra point, play for overtime, where your quarterback is still Kyle Allen, and now you have to execute a drive to go somewhere. Or one play to put up two and win the game. I, why would you anything but try and win the game? We've got a full Kyle Allen experience. Yeah. Awesome touchdown to almost tie the game. Uh, you know, a couple big-time throws in there. The turnover-worthy plays were poor. Misreads underneath, fumble. Um, Daniel Jones, you know, he's he, he was grading better than his stats early in the season. That's kind of tapered off recently. So I think, yeah, both teams continue to be in that massive question mark stage. But credit the Giants for the win. James Bradbury gets a pick, continues to play pretty well. Yeah, Bradbury is playing well. Um, I thought like Jones played okay as well. Like he... He's in that bucket of quarterbacks that have almost no help. I mean, his receivers are actually halfway decent, so it's not as bad as some situations, say the other New York situation. But yeah. he's in that kind of bucket, right, of quarterbacks that definitely are not being elevated by what's around them. And yet he's playing okay. I, I, it's definitely he's not playing as well as he did earlier in the season where he was legitimately grading significantly better than his overall numbers. But like every game, I come away kind of impressed by Daniel Jones, even his bad plays notwithstanding. Um, and even in this game, I mean, he was, I guess it was a razor-thin margin anyway, but, you know, Jones had the big 50-yard scamper um, that, that gave them a big play. Like, he is responsible for pretty much anything good that's happening there. Yeah, I mean, I think since, since entering the NFL, I knew he had some athleticism, but I think his, he's got a good feel as a scrambler as well you know I think he does he does a nice job there so that's what I've been maybe most impressed with that and his ability to make big time throws even though they're far less than it seems for a guy that has the Danny Dimes right nickname so yeah I agree with you it's a you know tough tough sledding over there with the Giants but um hey, gotta win celebrate your win I think would you rather would you rather the win or would you rather Trevor Lawrence I mean, I think you always want to win, right? Nobody wants to be the 0-16 Detroit Lions. Nobody. You just don't want that. So you want the win, and then you want to stop. But the whole thing see, is... the problem with the Giants is the Giants are close to having seen enough from Denton. Not to keep you from Trevor Lawrence, but... So if you get the number one overall pick, you're taking Trevor Lawrence, right? But if you're in the middle of your crappy season right now, 
The Jets, the only thing in this, the left for this season is the salvation of Trevor Lawrence. The Giants might actually have a future that is Trevor Lawrence less with Daniel Jones in a way that I don't think is an option for the Jets anymore. So why? Why? With Sam Darnold? Yeah. You think Daniel Jones has a better shot of success than I Sam Darnold? I think Daniel Jones has shown significantly more than, than Sam Darnold at this point. Oh, I don't know. Darnold's still younger, isn't he? Darn, he's going to be younger than everybody for like the next five years. As long yes. as he's still younger than everybody. It's not like, I mean, yeah, look, I'm just saying that can you envisage a scenario for the remainder of this season whereby Sam Darnold convinces you that you don't need Trevor Lawrence? No. Right. It, it, Daniel Jones is going to do the same? So I can see a scenario whereby he prevents you from getting Trevor Lawrence, at which point it's kind of the same thing. It's not the same thing. It is. I'm saying like if of you – Of course, if Sam Darnold – if Sam Darnold is going to have a four-game stretch where he grades at like 85, and you're like, look at this, he's turned a corner. And they'll go 0-4 in that time. If you gave Daniel Jones, or if you gave the Giants the number one overall pick right now, of course you take Trevor Lawrence, right? But their season still has some like vague hope to it in a way that the Jets doesn't. They are wait, The Jets are miserable wait. and just on course for that number one pick. The we Giants, will revisit this when Sam Darnold has suck. his four-game stretch. The Giants suck, but they can still win the division. Well, there's something to that. That's, right. That's an NFC East issue, not is, an AFC East issue. But that's East what I'm issue. saying. Like, Daniel Jones could go on a run and put them in, like, pole position the division in the space of, like, three games. The Jets could have that run, and it wouldn't make any difference. They'd still be over. Maybe this is the start of it, the Giants making their run in the NFC East. Let's go to the AFC South. Houston Texans and the Tennessee Titans. This was – I used to make fun of the Big 12. Now the SEC doesn't play any defense, so let's say it was like an SEC game no, with no defense. Nobody in college plays defense. Yeah, I think Corona killed everybody's defense this no, offseason. No, it didn't. Nobody's ever played defense in college. I'm saying NFL and college defense is worse than ever. Oh, NFL, yeah, yeah. NFL okay. too. Uh, so 42-36, to 36, the Tennessee Titans win. It was a back-and-forth incredible game. It, it did feel kind of like Deshaun Watson against the world from a Texans standpoint, from a Tennessee standpoint. Ryan Tannehill, when the grades come out, I think is going to be up in that 90-plus elite territory, again, mm. based off of back-to-back -back games, likely over 90. It's not official yet. Likely over 90. And they're actually duplicating, in the last few games, what happened last year. Well, certainly this game was almost exactly that. Like, Tannehill goes back to being the 90-plus all-pro caliber quarterback and then Derrick Henry goes off at the end like this was last year in a game um, it's easier to do that when you're playing the Texans who aren't very good for like three quarters of this game it was going exactly the way I thought it was which is hey Tennessee are actually quite good Houston aren't remember last week they played a Jacksonville team whose secondary was stuffed full of undrafted players and seventh round rookies because everyone was hurt it's like oh hey look the Deshaun Watson to Brandon Cooks connection is finally bearing some fruit like, well yeah that'll happen when you're facing terrible players um so i was kind of expecting this to suddenly the gloss comes off that again and we remember that you know actually they're not that good and then tennessee began to implode and sort of throw the ball in the direction of of houston made it a game lost the lead and almost lost the entire game um and it became this wild shootout until derrick henry took over at the end if you're how demoralizing must it be if you're a defensive back getting outrun over 94 yards in a straight line by Derrick Henry? Man, that is, but that's like classic Derrick Henry, right? Yeah. You know, he, it feels like 
all season, teams have done a pretty good job of bottling him up. And yes, it's demoralizing. He's really fast yeah. for a monster. That's the thing. But like all season, he's been bottled up and then he just gets unleashed. And as much as we hammer against the run game and all that stuff, there are a few running backs when you, you know, you don't want to go, let me just give him 25 carries in case at some point he breaks it. But Henry's kind of that guy when you stick with him and stick with him and stick with him. He's likely, you know, not likely, but he's more likely than others to create those big plays like he did um, and then gets the game winner as well. Right. There were, it's funny. There were people like trying to jump into my mentions after that and were like, oh, you thought Derrick Henry was going to regress, did you? Like that was the first game this season where he's kind of been like that. Let's wind it in a little bit. Like Derrick Henry has regressed this season from what he did last year and then went off against the Texans, who again, let's remember, it's the Texans. We've Houston's been... run defense is absolutely putrid. Yes. I am so disappointed in one of my favorite players in the league, Zach Cunningham. He just signed the monster deal. I feel like I'm saying this every week. I don't talk too much about linebackers, but man, he's got just some disastrous games this, this year so far, including this one. And his the one thing he's supposed to be doing well, Cunningham, is, is play the run. Mm. And it's just, it's just all bad. The, the Houston defense... Needs a complete overhaul. The Yeah, this is the first halfway decent game for J.J. Watt. But, I mean, I was talking about J.J. Watt in terms of, hey, I know he's been injured, but what we've seen from him working his way back from injury in the last couple of years has been really kind of close to where he was when he was, like, defensive player of the year. It's just that now you compare that to Aaron Donald and there's always, like, there's a, the bar has been moved, right? Um, but he hasn't been playing well at all this season. Now, okay, then nobody else has around him, so it's not like he has help. But, you know, if you're J.J. Watt playing at the peak of your powers or anything near it, you should be making a bigger impact than he's been making this season. Uh, yeah, I agreed. And he's, he's the only guy there, though. He's I know, the but, only like, guy. but at some point, does that even matter? Like, your job, your, your life as J.J. Watt and Aaron Donald, for that matter, has always been about, like, winning one-on-one -on -one battles and just wrecking what's in front of you. You can do that regardless of whether there's help around you. Like, your whole life is about shooting a gap and causing problems before anything of significance can be, like, platooned against you. Right. That shouldn't... It shouldn't matter that there isn't other people around you making a ton of plays. Like, you should still be able to destroy what's in front of you in a way he isn't this year. So the, the Texans, really quick... Their offensive line, from a pass protection standpoint, was fantastic. They actually they kept Watson clean for the most part. You know, when Watson's under pressure, a lot of it's his own doing. Watson played really well, made some really incredible throws down the field, uh, first touchdown, tight window in the end zone, all of that stuff. I don't, I don't think the Texans are terrible. No, defensively they are. Yeah, but they are also in this rut of when something goes right, something else doesn't. Right, and it's it's like wow. Now the offensive line is is playing better as they did at times last year. Watson plays an incredible game, and the defense can't make a stop. Right. And the defense is just a, a terrible across the board. Offensively, a few weeks ago with the Texans, it was like, well, Watson makes a great throw, it gets dropped. When Watson has an open receiver, he's missing it. I I still don't want to overrate how bad the Texans are. They do need a lot more talent on that team. But it's also this feeling of when one thing goes right, something else goes wrong. And that's not like a thing that you just yeah, it, you just hope that it all comes together. I don't know what you do to fix that in particular. Deshaun Watson is good enough whereby they're going to be in most games. 
because that's what having a good quarterback does for you is it's very difficult. It's, it's your line with the Joe Burrow thing, right? He's unblowoutable. Like it's very hard to blow out a team that has a really good quarterback yeah. because fundamentally they're going to put you in. Damn it, I did it again. Fundamentally. Fundamentally. Because yeah. they're going to put Mike you again a few yeah, times too. They're going to put you in pretty much every game regardless of what's going on. But it's, like, it's the difference between being in every game and actually capable of winning them. Like the Texans yeah. are not good. And as I was saying in the preview, they've got a, their schedule's not easy. Like it may be easier than the first four games, which was a, disaster but their schedule doesn't get easy for the rest of the season like they are going to be in a lot of tough games against some good teams and that means they're going to be behind the eight ball like you're going to need a watson to play well and b a few breaks to bounce your way and so far they haven't been all right two things to wrap up in this game here i want to know if the titans are legit we'll get to that in a second and most importantly the decision by interim head coach romeo cornell to go for two while up seven mm. okay so it's about a minute left in the game texans score a touchdown they go up seven and one of the common things that the computer folk have been saying <laughs> computer folk. is when you're up seven the traditional way of doing things is you kick the extra point you go up eight yeah great it's now the other team's chasing a touchdown plus a two-point conversion that's uncomfortable for the offense great however the the computer folk have brought up the point that if you have seven, if you do go for two, you get to nine, and the game's all but over. Mm -hmm. You're one play away from essentially ending the game. And your worst-case scenario is you're still up seven. The other team still has to drive the length of the field, score a touchdown, extra point, you go to overtime, and you play it out. Um, when analytical moves go wrong, the analytics gets trashed. Yes. So was this the right or the wrong move by the Houston Texans going for two, up seven? I haven't actually checked what the overall numbers say. My intuition says it's probably going to end up being about a wash, right? Because effectively you're comparing your chances of converting a two-point conversion with their chances of converting a two-point conversion, right? right? It should be more or less the same when you factor in. In our numbers would factor in the quarterback, which right. I think the traditional ones don't. Which should make it more or less the same, right? Because Watson, Tannehill, whatever. It's going to be close. Generally... I am always going to be in favor of a strategy that ends the game with a play. Particularly, I, unless you are absolutely staggeringly inept in offense, right? If you have like the, if you have Joe Flacco, you're the 0-4 Jets, you haven't scored a single point, you haven't actually converted a third down until, I don't, did they even convert one in that game? Nobody in that game converted one until like the end of the third quarter. Anyway, like, unless that is your scenario and you're like, there is no way we're converting this two-point conversion. Any other scenario, I say you've got one shot. It puts it to a point of nine points. It's so hard to get an onside kick in today's NFL. You basically ended the game. If you give yourself one play to end the game, I am generally going to be in favor of that decision. So this one, the riverboat Ron, go for two, win the game. Mike Zimmer, go for two, or go for the, the fourth down conversion and essentially end the game. I'm always going to, you're going to, I'm going to have your back for that decision. Even if it's like the numbers marginally say, kick it. I'm still in favor of take the shot, end it right there, then and there. And I'll, I'll go for that here. I'm going to lean that way as well. I stand with Romeo. I do think when, when you're making these decisions though, here's, here's the thing. You're, you're changing percentage percentage points yeah. in win probability. Right. It's not like the go-for-it decision. Now, if, now when you 
the difference is though, like when you execute something, there's sometimes a, you know, a big, a big win to be had there. Um, but the difference when you're making decision, the, the decision, knowing that there's a success and a failure rate, you're making a marginal, you know, yeah, gain I, or loss here. I think part of the reason this causes problems is because it gets presented in absolute terms, right? You go, you should 100% go for it here. But the reason you should 100% go for it here is because is because all the numbers say that you gain a marginal uh, extra addition of, of win percentage points by doing so. Right. Therefore, it is the right call. But it's not to say that like every time you go for it there, it, it wins. It's just that if you do that a thousand times, you, you make it slightly better going for it every time than you do not going for it every time. But wh I think what causes problems in the brains of you know, the football people is it's like, well, it didn't work. So it kind of been the right decision to go for it. The nerds didn't factor in that the left guard is having a rough day and blah, blah, blah. Like that, I think just the way it's presented in terms of it, you have to go for it here is it causes issues. Whereas right. really what it's saying is, look, it's close. It's not a slam dunk either way. There are you know decisions where it's like a massive no-brainer one, one way or the other, right? But this is not one of them. It's close, at which point, yeah, you probably should, but I, we should probably all be a little bit more careful about how we actually f uh, structure the phrasing around these conversations. Here's why it's close, right? If you go for I like the idea, one play away, you go for it, you win. The, then the downside is you don't go, you don't get it. You're still up seven. You have a chance to stop the other team. The Texans have a chance to stop the Titans, which they didn't do. Hmm. Um, then the Titans have to kick an extra point which is not a gimme anymore yeah. to tie it up. And then you go to overtime and still, if both teams equal, it's still a 50-50 chance to win, right? So the ultimate thing, people were calling this a failure as soon as they went into overtime, right? Right. So they were like, well, you failed. You let the Titans take you to overtime. But built into this equation, so to speak, is the fact that you're go if you do go to overtime, you still have a chance to win. The ultimate result is not avoid overtime or avoid embarrassment or get second guess. The ultimate goal is to win. So it's all pointed to what are your chances to win the football game? Even if it feels like this decision failed and maybe you gave the other team more opportunities, you still have a chance to win. Ultimately, everything went against the Texans. Had they kicked the extra point and gotten it, again, not a gimme, you're up eight. The Titans still go down the length of the field. And then it comes down to, as you said, their two-point conversion to tie it up and go to overtime versus your two-point conversion, which happened initially so maybe over time it is a wash either way the texans had over a 90 percent chance i think to win this game and they blew it and then credit the titans how good are the titans what do you want to say it's also not one of those scenarios whereby your decision essentially changes how aggressive they have to be by making them need a touchdown right, right? either way they need the touchdown so they're going to be as aggressive as is possible uh, late in the game it's not one of the ones where your decision essentially aff actually affects a, the percentages, but B, by the way you're forcing them to play if you make or don't make. So, yeah, I mean, so as for the Titans, I think they are for real, but kind of under the radar coming out of this game is they lost Taylor Lewan to, I think, a torn ACL. Yeah. Like he's going to be done for the season. That's that's a pretty significant blow. After having Taylor Lewan and Jack Conklin, solid right tackle last season, and now you've got the Dennis Kellys of the world. I mean, you just... When I got neither of them. Yeah. Yeah. So that that could be an issue 
for the Titans going forward. The AFC, though, it's deep now mm. with the Titans and Steelers and Bills and AFC. lurking around the Ravens and Chiefs. The right? AFC is the new NFC. Well, the NFC is still pretty good, too, I think. I think everything's wide open and crazy. The NFC has the East. So. The NFC's got some weaknesses up. You know. Speaking of the NFC East, let's go to the Baltimore Ravens and the Philadelphia Eagles. We thought this would be close, then it looked like it wasn't close, and then it became close again. Yeah. 30-28, to 28, Baltimore survives. Yesterday felt like this weird week where if you looked at the games at a certain point, really quite late into them, you could be convinced that things were going a completely different way to the way they actually ended up. So this was one of those ones where I'm saying, well, you know, Carson Wentz kind of looks fixed, at which point it's it's good news for the Eagles. It might not matter in this game, um, but, you know, take the over because Carson Wentz will be dealing, the you know, all these kinds of things. And then you, they were just getting blown to bits. You're like, oh, okay, yeah, that didn't, didn't go so well. The Eagles are just getting stomped. And then they, made, they made it close in the end. There was just a lot. There's a lot of fascinating storylines, I think, in this game. For the most important one, though, is Brandon Graham. I just want to get this on record. Mm-hmm. We've had a, like a four-year running bet on Brandon Graham's sacks. Right? So 2017, he had over 10. He had 12. I won. Yeah. Last year, seven. So I get. Oh, I have over 10. You have under 10. Yes. Last year, seven. Sorry, 2018, seven. 2019, nine. I just want to say thanks to Lamar Jackson running into two sacks, including one for zero yards that counted as a sack. Brandon Graham has five mm. through six weeks. He is halfway to you getting lunch after six weeks. We've auto-renewed this bet. It's yeah. it's clear? Okay. Because last year, I don't think I reminded you about the bet because he was you know, not doing so hot. Yeah. But um, his pass rush grade right now is the worst it's been since 2013 but Brandon Graham has five sacks through six games so there would be something kind of fitting about that that if you just had a <laughs> this is the season that essentially um highlighted his demise in terms of you know age he's finally done his his numbers have fallen off but he lucks into like 12 sacks yeah for perspective in 2016 Brandon Graham had a 91.4 pass rush grade that is elite six sacks yep. this year pass rush grade in the 60s Five sacks in six weeks. He is so. he has had a career of generating fewer sacks than he generates pressures by a massive degree. He's going to finish his career with the full like Bud Dupree, That's what mediocre I mean. yeah. pass rush grade in fifteen yeah. sacks, or the Vic Beasley the season where he gets like tw- he gets like eight cleanup sacks. I'll take it. Uh, there was so many there was so many things that happened in this game. I thought first off the Ravens they took Marlon Humphrey when they were playing man cover- man coverage. They matched him up against Zach Ertz before Ertz got hurt. Marlon Humphrey just had what a like ridiculous game he had all over the place. He had a busted coverage that led to a huge play. He had the Tillman peanut punch mm-hmm. for a fumble, which apparently his is his thing now. You know, you ever play a a video game and you just like overdo it with with a certain button, or you play Madden and you just overdo the spin move or something like that. Every time Humphrey tries to go in for a tackle, he's trying to peanut punch the whole thing. I mean, I think it's a smart thing. I to think do. it's great. Peanut it's just it's it. funny that that's how much he's emphasizing things. And he also dipped the edge on uh, Jack Driscoll for a sack. Humphrey was all over the place, both good and bad. I think Humphrey is a. I think he's insanely underrated. And I was writing this when he got his big extension. Like I think he gets screwed by what they ask him to do in terms of he doesn't get the credit as a sort of the next Stephon Gilmore, you know, a number one shutdown cover corner on the perimeter, because they keep getting injuries and ask him to do other things. And he's like, all right, sure, yeah, I'll do it, you know, whatever it takes to win. And he does things that don't necessarily make him look great most of the time, or at least um, don't necessarily give him phenomenal numbers 
and it makes it helps the team. It makes them better. But it, you know, we think of the best thing a cornerback can do is be a Stephon Gilmore, a guy on the edge who shuts down a number one receiver and plays man coverage all game long. If you're if you're playing in the slot or you're you know doing all these things that you just mentioned, like it's nice and they're great and they're highlight plays. But like you know, true number one doesn't do that. Like you wouldn't see Deion Sanders in there, peanut punching the ball. That's what lesser guys do because they have to make up for the fact that they can't cover as well. Like I think Humphrey might actually be one of the best man cover guys in the NFL. But because he plays in the slot where you get a two way go and you're giving up short catches constantly and you have to do all this dirty work, we don't actually see that much of it and appreciate it. Yeah, it's not exact. Remember back in. 2009 and 10 when uh, Darrell Rebus was that guy and it, defensive player of the year came down to him and Charles Woodson yeah and it's not it, Humphrey doesn't play the Charles Woodson role Woodson was legitimately one of the early guys playing linebacker slash safety slash corner like doing it all Humphrey isn't at that level I don't think of versatility but that was the debate Woodson's going to get in and a right. bunch of tackles play the run play the slot play zone play man do it all versus Rebus just locking up the the, the one guy on the outside Humphrey has elements of that to his game like I said playing you know press coverage pressing against Zach Ertz in this particular game which I think brings up another issue with the Eagles that they don't have receivers that you're afraid of to the point where the Ravens are taking their best cover guy and putting him on your tight end uh, as much as Wentz had some he had some his first two big time throws were dropped I mean this is like I was saying with the Texans when good stuff happens on one side, bad stuff is happening somewhere else. And the, the Eagles, they crept back into it. But, man, they were just – they just felt overmatched for much of the game. Yeah, I mean, they are. This is – it ended up the way we said it was going to go heading into the game. It just got there by a weird route of getting their ass kicked for most of the game. But, like, Wentz, I think, is fundamentally back. He's not going to be 2017 MVP caliber season Wentz. And I honestly don't know if that guy's ever going to come back. Like, that was just a weird run of – unsustainable things like he was that 2017 season he was like off the charts on all the absurdly unpredictable volatile unstable metrics right, right. Uh, like just nuts in a way that was never going to happen long term um so that's probably not going to happen but he's back to like being pretty decent or at least a wildly volatile guy capable of big plays but he has no offensive line and no receivers pretty much um and that that's a problem like Torrey Smith was on some TV basically Look, no quarterback plays well if he doesn't have either protection or receivers if you have one or the other we can talk but if you have neither of them you're screwed the the pass protection was was rough in this one too Calais Campbell was dominant up front for the Ravens and man we always talked last year about that positionless defense from the Ravens I know they ended up ultimately giving up 28 points but it did feel it felt it was a couple of coverage busts in there that that kind of screwed yeah. them over, right? I mean they they just make life difficult on offenses other than the Chiefs, yes, essentially. So. Which, by the way, the longer that the more of these games the Ravens have, the more insane that game appears to be. Because it's yeah. not like the Chiefs are just. I mean, we know the offense was good. It was more that the Ravens' defense confuses the living crap out of every quarterback it plays and every offense it plays because it messes with protection. Uh, calls and all those kinds of things the Chiefs it was like they knew what was coming like they had the answers you know like if you if you're playing Madden right and you see what the other guy is calling yeah. and you can make the adjustments and kill it right they it's like they were seeing what the Ravens were calling on a play before it came and we're like oh that you're sending this blitz 
well, then here's where we're going with the ball. And it was just, it was easy. Everybody else doesn't know what's coming and just implodes in the face of it. Um, on the other side, when Baltimore offensively, in my notes here, Eagles linebackers are a train wreck. I, I think all yeah. of their middle, they have been for much of the year anyway. But when you go up against Lamar and what he brings to the table. That'll highlight it, yeah. Yes. Um, still, the Baltimore passing offense feels way more like it's, we defended Lamar so much coming out saying he doesn't just run around and make plays and all that stuff. This year, though, feels like it's way more of that than him comfortably making throws from the pocket. Is this a lack of dynamic playmakers catching up to them? Is it defenses adjusting? Is it the fact that they don't have the dominant run game that we talked about in the preview show? They're just not the same run game that they were a year ago i know they keep winning other than the chiefs game hmm. they keep winning but this is not the same ravens offense from last year and i don't know how concerning that is going forward as the season unfolds you still have two more steelers games and, and all that stuff that you know still to, still to come yeah it it's going to become a problem for seeding i think long term i don't think it's a problem because i think what we're seeing is a reflection of that there i so there is a, an underlying problem that the blocking up front is not as good as it was a year ago because Marshall Yanda, a Hall of Famer, walks away and you replace him with somebody that isn't a Hall of Famer. And, you know, how good that interior ends up being is, I think, still a fluid thing. But right now, it's definitely a downgrade over what it was a year ago. So something is not going to be as good as it was last season. Also, um, Lamar's been injured and he's clearly not 100%. And I know he's like taking off and making scramble plays and all those kinds of things. He's still able to play, but I don't think they want him to be or to do the things that he's been doing when the offense is 100% yet. They're trying to protect him a little bit in terms of what they ask him to do until he is 100% healthy, and then they can go back to more of that run-focused uh, scheme. Um, and then I think there's a degree of – I mean, last week we were talking about how they basically treated that game against the Bengals as a scrimmage, right? We, we know we don't have to deploy Lamar in that way. Let's just try and pass. I think they are consciously trying to improve that area of the offense because ultimately this team wants to be a Super Bowl team. They know that at some point they're going to have to knock off the Steelers and they're going to have to beat the Chiefs in the postseason. Like Those are the teams they are focusing on, at which point Lamar has to have that club in his bag. Like You have to be able to... All right, we're down 14. The offensive game plan has gone out the window. You need to drop back and pass and chase the game a little bit. Right now, there's no evidence that this team is actually capable of executing that against a really good team. I think they know that, and they at least want to work on that in the course of games that they think they're winning anyway. So I think it's sort of two or three things all lumped together are causing this, this offense to not look the same as it did a year ago. But they're messing with my fantasy team, Sam. That's unfortunate. And a lot of fantasy owners are very upset yeah. that if they have Mark Ingram, J.K. Dobbins, or Gus Edwards, they don't know what to get every single week. Well, yeah. I mean, to be honest, if you're a fantasy owner and you're messing with the Baltimore backfield, that's kind of on you. Yeah, but it was okay last year when I had Mark Ingram. Yeah. It was okay. Now I doubled down on him. It's not good for me. No, I, I wonder if it's just they are passing more. And this is, this is the whole part of passing being more efficient. Passing sometimes is uncomfortable. Like your completion percentage isn't great or whatever. You, you can have a, a bad passing game 
is still more efficient than a good running game over time. Now, a great running game like they had last year, great, that's different. But maybe that's part of it. They're pivoting to more of a pass-heavy approach. And look, they still ran the ball a ton yeah. yesterday. But the the un, the uncomfortable pass game is still going to be more efficient than a good running game. And, and even though it doesn't feel great, you're still going to score more points over time. But it also it affects the balance of the way this offense works. Like we were talking about... One of the reasons Lamar looks so good as a passer last year is because what he does in the run game and the run game period opens things up for him as a as a passer, right? He is yeah. his own um, best weapon in terms of what he does. His threat on the ground makes his own life easier in the passing game. But when you work away from that, when you pull back from that stuff, suddenly it doesn't open up the spaces it used to in the passing game. And it's almost, it's like a self-defeating circle, right? edging towards the passing game actually diminishes the effect or the effectiveness of the passing game because it was the threat of the run when it was so good that opened up all those spaces right i agreed I, there is there is a dependency there that you know i think the ravens still want to get back to let's go to the atlanta falcons and the minnesota vikings i picked the falcons to win this somewhere you i don't did. know if it was on this podcast or yeah, not. I was, did i do yeah. it here yeah um when i put in my official picks i did I was on the live show this week, and I apparently had about faced um, from from the preview podcast because I picked the Falcons. Everyone yeah. else, everyone else has been snake bit by the Falcons and betting on them. Is like I'm not touching them. I was like, no, 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 the Vikings. Yeah, this is ride the Falcons. This makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, it turns out it did. But apparently, I didn't. Apparently, I was the other way on the preview podcast. So. Well, I mean, look, if you do as much media <laughs> as we do, there'll be a lot of weeks where you just pick both sides of a game, and <laughs> hey, you're right. Yeah, somewhere. Freezing cold takes. Somewhere you're Take right. that as long as you hedge. Look, I've been saying for four years if the Falcons are better than they've been showing. Yeah. This finally showed it this week. Or as somebody pointed out, was this the dead whale game? You don't have a dead whale game against another dead whale. That's the thing. <laughs> you can't have a You have a dead whale game against a live and <laughs> kicking true. whale like the Saints. That is true. You know, what, the, what the Falcons are going to do is beat the Bucks late in the season or beat the Saints late right. in the season or whatever it might be. Um, against Minnesota, man, Kirk Cousins starts off with three picks. Uh, again, you know, not all, not every single one his falls, but the first one, you know, throwing one right to Deion Jones. That not great. Cool. And uh, I can't believe Cousins salvaged his stat line again. <laughs> this was just classic Cousins. Plays horrendously the whole time and then just uh, at the end of the day, get that passer rating back up. But look, Atlanta's offense, Julio Jones becomes a monster once again. Matt Ryan plays a nice, efficient game. This is what they're capable of. Coming into the season, it was supposed to be the Falcons have a baseline of success when Matt Ryan and those playmakers are out there. And as bad as their defense is, it doesn't matter. They should at least have that baseline of success. And I think this is what they should have been here in week six. Yeah, I think it was. This was this was what Atlanta is capable of. And it's, they were decent and that, that offensive line is not horrendous either like i think it gets a lot of criticism because of how the offense generally has been wallowing in its own in mud and just getting stuck and not going anywhere but that offensive line like part of the reason todd Gurley has been so successful this season despite not looking like todd Gurley when he was you know mvp caliber todd Gurley um uh, back with the rams is because the offensive line is shoehorning some pretty big holes for him to run through and he's able to like generate a huge amount of yardage without looking 
absurdly dynamic and incredible and the, the player that he once was. Like, that offensive line is not garbage, and Minnesota's defense is. It's funny looking at um, pass protection numbers from yesterday. It was a lot of the tight ends and backs that, that let the Falcons down. Um, whereas with the Vikings, it was center, tackle, guard. It was, it was the line. It was the yeah. offensive line. I mean, Drew Samia has been a terrible starting guard, and at some point, and then they had to replace him. So right. that was only likely to go one way. Uh, Ezra Cleveland playing snaps, the rookie out of Boise State, and struggling Dakota Dozier, Garrett Bradbury, all of those guys struggling in pass pro here against a Falcons defensive front that, you know, for multiple years now has really, other than Grady Jarrett, really struggled to get consistent pressure. I'm particularly disappointed. Dakota Dozier should be better just for his name. That yeah, is right. the most guard name in NFL history. Dakota is a good name to begin with for an offensive lineman. Dozier, like that's made to be like a road grading monster guard, and he isn't. Hey guys, life is full of questions. Like what would happen to my family if something happened to me? Am I saving enough for retirement? And is now the right time to start thinking about life insurance, just to name a few. No one should have to settle for answers to these life-altering questions that involve gray areas or leaving things to chance. And with Western and Southern, you won't have to. Backed by over 130 years of experience gathering insights, building strategies, and helping customers choose the right solutions, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments. Compensated endorser products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. Let's talk about Matt Ryan really quick here. When you talk about the Falcons as a job, and this is how much we... Um, <laughs> by the way, three Vikings offensive linemen had pass blocking grades in the 20s. Yeah, that's what I was looking at. Yeah. Not not great, Bob. Not good at not all. Not great. Uh, I, I don't know. On the preview pod, were we just ready to move on from Matt Ryan, figure out what the Falcons are going to do? Do the... Do you hit, I wasn't. Well, we were discussing the possibility, weren't we? I don't remember where this stuff came up. Yeah. Well, I'm back on the train. He had a nice game in a dome <laughs> on the road. He's great. Look, do you look at the Falcons' job and say, we've got Matt Ryan for at least a couple more years, and we flirt with the next quarterback. This is an attractive – like, Atlanta should be an attractive job, right, because of yeah. what we say with this, this baseline on offense. I think there's – I mean, the point I was making is that – I. Ryan, they can't get rid of him, right? They're stuck with him yeah. con contractually for a while, right? And you've got Julio Jones, you've got Calvin Ridley, you've got an offensive line that the pieces are there for that to be okay. I think this is a team that can rebuild with Matt Ryan at quarterback and then figure out how you transition to the next guy somewhere down the line, right? You're not, you're not in a position where you blow this whole thing up and start over from scratch with a rookie because you're stuck with Matt Ryan. Like, he's there. So I think you can rebuild this thing around him pretty well and then you try and work out how you how you get a next young quarterback. I think that's fair. Minnesota. Oh, I mean, that it's concerning when if you're a head coach and your calling card is a particular side of the ball. If that entire side of the ball collapses, the defense. Mike Zimmer has a track record of having pretty good defenses year on year on year on year. You know, I don't, maybe rarely gets to being like truly truly elite. Um, but he's always got a good defense, and this defense is bad. Like it looks at that in against uh, Seattle. There was this little clip of Harrison Smith, you know, screaming at Cameron Dantzler after he got beat by DK Metcalf on the big fourth and ten play. Right, covers him, then loses him at the catch point, and that's the game almost. 
and you see this little clip of Harrison Smith saying, you know, expletive Cam or Cam cover your expletive guy, you know? And it looked yesterday like he was just fit to murder half that defense. Like, what am I doing back here surrounded by these idiots who just can't cover anybody? Do the Vikings, first, do the Vikings take a guy like Harrison Smith? Are they in sell mode as we head into the trade deadline? I mean, they probably should be, right? Because the defense is bad um, and they're not going to be good this year. They are, I mean, there's, when they got the one win and you, there was a sort of feeling that, okay, the offense looks fixed now. Maybe they can go in a run and get back to being somewhere mediocre. I don't, I don't know, mediocre might be too far at this point. You might be genuinely shooting for, this is our one shot to really be bad this year and have a shot at a new quarterback and rebuild completely. If, if Dallas wins tonight on Monday Night Football and takes control of the <laughs> NFC East with their two wins, in their, are they looking for an Anthony Harris? Harrison Smith are, are both safeties guys that you would put Very, up on the trading block and, and even though the Vikings brought in 15 draft picks last year you still need more as you rebuild if Dallas wins tonight they get to 500 they get well they have three wins they get back they have three wins three Sorry. and three take I mean a commanding lead in the Crushing NFC East with three wins with 500 that would put them one game back from the Rams um but True. like I I mean yeah look if you're the Vikings I don't see a scenario whereby that defense gets fixed quickly, at which point if you've got a guy like Harrison Smith, who's still one of the best safeties in the NFL, you already have another one in uh, Anthony Harris. You could probably flip one of those guys for some pretty impressive draft capital at a time where that could be useful. Um, but uh, the other thing that struck me, I like Cameron Dantzler as a corner, third round rookie. Um, I think he can cover people really well, particularly given his physical limitations, but he has now had like back-to-back -back games where he's had to cover DK Metcalf and Julio Jones. That guy is like 180 pounds. He, how do you cover a guy that outweighs you by 50? Like yeah. that's huge. The difference between him and like those true number one guys in the NFL is just absurd in terms of size and physicality. Look, we talk about this with if the most important thing for receivers is getting open, the most important thing for corners is preventing guys from getting open, being in tight coverage. But then you get to the to the catch point, and you have to at least do something. Part of the reason why we really liked Marlon Humphrey coming out, if you read his scouting report, it's sticky in man coverage. He covers well. He can stick with receivers. He'll lose the catch point a lot of times, though, and he right. gave up some big plays. But that's the type of stuff that you know fluctuates a little bit over time. I think your point with Dantzler, though, is fair. He, he, does, he does cover pretty well. But the catch point stuff might be so difficult for him against physical receivers. Is it always just going to be this big weakness where he's working from behind? And it also becomes harder to cover well throughout the route if you're just physically overwhelmed. Like if, right. if you're trying to hand fight with a guy and his hand is like swatting you with a baseball bat and your hand is like a, you know, like a bamboo reed in See, comparison. I don't think the average fan at home realizes how physical wide receivers and cornerbacks yeah. are with each other when you see hand fighting it looks like a little right. slap fight but those guys are strong yes and we when you see when you see receivers get knocked off their route by a physical corner who's got you know strong hands and, and knows how to hand fight and alternatively receivers who know how to use their hands can push cornerbacks off their routes like they you have to be strong through the route not just at the i mean point. think of it just in terms of like press coverage right if a guy comes up and tries to jam you at the line, 
like if your contact on him just shoves him right out of your way, you win. Like the difference between a Cameron Dantzler trying to jam you and a Stefan Gilmore trying to jam you is immense. And it's just, I mean, it's this is the worst two week stretch for him possible, right? You go, I mean, it could only get worse if like next week he had to deal with Chase Claypool, but he's had back-to-back weeks where he's been trying to cover a guy who can run at least as fast as him and actually significantly faster if you just go by, you know, official 40 times. And the dude outweighs him by like 50 pounds. And that's just like, you're in a no-win situation at that point. So let's move on. Minnesota, let's sell. Start selling, Vikings. Yeah. And they're going to make some Cousins decisions. There's a lot going on with the Vikings. Let's go to the Cleveland Browns and the Pittsburgh Steelers. We had it as one of the games of the week. You guys loved our preview over on YouTube. Everybody was reading it. A lot of Browns fans thought we were disrespecting them. But yeah. um, can I we claim weren't. we can claim victory though, right? This was, I mean, this was the game. I don't want to claim anything. I want to claim victory. I want to rant about Baker because that was horrendous. Because he sucks. He was bad. Yeah. And uh, Mike Renner's going to write an article about. Already has. Is it already up? It's shed a single tear when I saw it come in. I mean, I know it's it's going to be up at pff.com. Like time to be really concerned. Yeah. About Baker Mayfield. Here's what I saw. Um, for the very first snap. Because I've seen the film. Hmm. The very first snap was concerning. (laughs) And all it was, it was a five-yard scramble from Baker. Five-yard scramble. But the Steelers are in too high. They have one of the most classic concepts in football. You got a stick concept to the trip side. You got slant flat to the other side. And all you do is when you see too high, you work the stick side. You got a a little hook and two out routes. And that's the side that you work when you see too high. I mean, it's just classic football. And the Steelers weren't even disguising. It wasn't even like a late rotation or anything like that. And Baker takes the snap and he works the wrong side of the field. And, of course, nobody's open on the slant flat side. And, um, you know, so he starts there. And then he goes back to the other side. And nobody's open there because it's too late. And then he ends up scrambling for five. And immediately I'm thinking just – the easy stuff. The stuff that we call, quote-unquote, easy. Not for me, not for you, but for an NFL quarterback. Working the right side of the field and taking an eight-yard gain when it's there needs to be taken. And it wasn't. And then the next play, pick six. Yeah. His that- next pass is a pick six. And the same thing, you know, it wasn't like Minka, Fitzpat- Minka comes down, he's in a lurk roll. He was there. He wasn't disguising a whole lot, and Baker doesn't see him, and he had other options to work to. Well, it's the classic example of, look, they're going to have that first slant covered, so the window is the second slant coming in behind it because all the coverage has gone to the first one. Now, it is a pass that gets picked off a lot. Like It's one of those ones where the quarterback wants to hit the first read, Yeah. so he tends to throw it way more than he should, and that's what happens. But, again, like the better quarterbacks realize that's happening and take the second slant in behind it, and that was to, that would have been to Odell Beckham, and it probably would have been a pretty big game. So, like, yeah, the, the thing that – so, to start off, right, this game I suspect was a no-win Baker game, right? There's, this was inevitable that he was going to get his ass kicked. The Steelers with the most blitz-happy defense in the NFL, with the most pressure-happy defense in the NFL, going up against a Browns offensive line that's got guys missing, a Baker with busted ribs. And, you know, it just it was set up to be a repeat of that Baltimore game in week one. And it kind of went exactly like that. Um, also, it looked like the Steelers' D generally had a 
speed on like the snap count. Like TJ Watt was jumping the snap. Oh yeah, a Pretty, lot. Really bad. Baker's second pick, like TJ Watt looked offside. He jumped the. It was really snap close. So well, yeah, I was going back and forth to see if he actually right. was offsides, but he he but, timed it up. Yeah, well. so they they had a timing on that as well, which <laughs> didn't help and made things even worse. But the concerning thing, so the fact that Baker was bad in this game, eventually pulled from it, I suspect, for his own safety rather than anything else, um, is shouldn't be surprising. But what is concerning is the stuff we've just been talking about. It's the basic misreads that is bad. Like I can, the the thing that was worrying me last year and the start of this season is that idea of just not being comfortable in the pocket and causing a lot of your own problems. But now, whatever about that stuff, if you can't just look at a defense and read the right stuff, yeah. I mean, that's even worse maybe. So now you've got two potentially crippling things from a long-term quarterback's perspective that are massive red flags. Like if those, if those were things that were negatives on a draftable prospect, you would be massively concerned. But this is now a quarterback, you know, a couple of years into the NFL trying to determine whether he has long-term prospects. Those are huge problems to have this late into your career yeah i mean there were there were other plays too i mean just you have know, third and short and austin hooper's wide open over the ball you're just not taking i mean there were just too many of those plays so let's go back and recap our season so far for week one the ravens destroy the browns mm -hmm. and and baker in the passing game is terrible in between that up until week six not great defenses Baker's kind of protected. The offense is humming. They're moving the ball. The run game is excellent. The run blocking is excellent. They're scheming open some throws. And then you get to this game against Pittsburgh. And it's like week one all over again, but even worse. It's a, it's it's just horrendous. I think after week one, we're like, ah, maybe we overreacted a little bit and we, we were ready to write off Baker. But now there's two games, the two most crucial games, the two most difficult games against the Ravens and the Steelers. I mean, yesterday was the first time I thought, are the Browns going to move on? Maybe not this year, although I, I wonder if Case Keenum, his backup, could actually run this offense more efficiently right now. I wonder if that's the case. And I wonder if we see Baker Mayfield and he's just thrown into the mix next year as another rejuvenation project. You know, he might be in New England next year. They loved him coming out of the draft. There's a team like New England who liked him coming out and doesn't have a quarterback of the future right now. Do they try to make a play for him even though we have an extra two plus years of evidence of his of his NFL play, I'm just wondering if his future is in Cleveland at the moment. And yeah, the, am I, I overreacting to this? Um, I no. They're four and two. Am I overreacting to the fact I think he might not be in Cleveland not next year? Maybe that part. Yes. Um. I so I think after six weeks, my takeaways from the Browns are that the Browns are actually going to be fine long term. I think Stefanski's offense functions. It looks good. It's exactly what it was supposed to be. It's as build, right? At which point, if they're prepared to give patience, and that's never a guarantee, the Browns should actually be pretty good going forward. I think they've got the right coach for once. Um, but despite all those good things, Baker has not been playing well this season. He's been playing significantly worse this year than last year when everybody was willing to write him off. Um, and that's despite everything else being great around him for four out of those six games. Uh, but... There's no, I don't think there's a benefit of going to Case Keenum, right? Even though I might not disagree with you, I think in this offense, he does it better. He, so 2017 was Keenum in the Minnesota offense, Pat Shermer, 
not you know a similar that protected its quarterback a similar system in terms of it protected its quarterback a lot and Keenum showed that you know if you give him that kind of scenario he can play well he had a top 10 PFF grade that year now yeah. it's the only time he's been anywhere in that ballpark um but I I don't think it's crazy to say that if like in the last few weeks take out the Baltimore and the Pittsburgh game if you put Keenum in the offense for those four weeks he ends up with like a top 10 PFF grade right Baker didn't like I don't know what his grade was compared to the rest of the NFL in that time um, but it's not top 10 let me see I'll pull that up right now Baker Mayfield's grade. I'm just wondering I mean look Keenum 23rd over that four-week span right so the yeah. time where the, the Browns are putting up 40 plus points um, and, and humming sorry 21st if you filter out the the low sample size guys so even when everything was going perfectly Baker Mayfield was grading outside of the top 20 quarterbacks in the NFL and you then have to add in two disaster games where he was benched in one of them and could have been benched in the other one for just being that bad so I think it's probably overreacting to say that at the end of this year they cut bait and find something else if for no other reason than by the end of this year they might be in really good shape and to throw a young rookie unproven quarterback or whatever into that would be quite the gamble but I don't think it's overreacting to at this point be looking at what you're getting from Baker Mayfield and be seriously concerned about his long-term prospects because the two things that are his biggest negatives right now are like quarterback killing traits it's you cannot hang in a pocket be comfortable and deliver the ball where it needs to go and two you can't read a defense for half the time. Like, you're missing basic yeah. day one install things that if a rookie was doing it, Joe Burrow is reading defenses significantly better than Baker Mayfield right now. And he's six weeks into his career behind the worst offensive line in the NFL getting buried every week. That, I think, is a massive concern. And by the way, like, <laughs> there's a bunch of people in our comments are like, oh, that guy hates Baker Mayfield. Like, dude, I, I am as invested in Baker Mayfield's success as any prospect that's come along during PFF's era. And it's killing me that the dude is going backwards, not forwards at this point. Yeah, because the data loved him. We loved him. Right. He, he didn't, and, he showed snippets of these negatives, but not, you know, stretched and, out like this. And rookie Baker looked great. If, right. if he just sucked at the NFL level, I'd have a way easier time of taking it. Right? No, he it's had like, success oh, as a rookie. He was legit yeah. as a rookie. He was great in college. He just turns out he just doesn't have it in the pros, right? And But no, he, like year one, rookie Baker Mayfield looked fantastic. And since then, it's just gone in the tank. On the Steelers' side of it, the defense, this is what, you know, they were hoping for oh, coming yeah. into the season. They're good. Yeah. yeah. But they, they hadn't been good on the back end, you know, it, throughout much of the season but this was Minka finally making that play that was what kind of showed that, that was what made Steelers fans so excited when he showed up last year was those big plays um they do lose Devin Bush for the season yeah that's a tough loss in the middle of the field um but the back seven played probably their best game of the year for the Steelers I just want to laugh at Big Ben for a minute um our guy Bruce Gradkowski fellow PFFer. He's mm. uh he's from the Pittsburgh area. Well, always watches the Steelers closely and he's buddies with Big Ben. Yeah. Yeah, they're buddies. And uh he was tweeting yesterday about how much Big Ben hates RPOs and then uh run pass options, right? And they ran 3 at the beginning of the game and they were just horrendous. Big Ben who generally he works the screen game pretty well. He's got a quick release. He could do a lot of that stuff. He looks so uncomfortable running an RPO. You stick the stick the ball in. You got to read a linebacker. If he moves up, you're throwing it behind him. Big Ben almost threw a pick, 
right into two dudes to start it off. And then he's got multiple batted passes and just the whole thing just looked off. And the RPO in general should be easy money. Mm-hmm. It should be like just make the defense wrong, steal you know, steal eight yards here and there. I don't know if we would see another one from the Steelers the rest of the uh, <laughs> rest of the season. Big Ben. I mean, Big Ben hates play action too. Yeah, right. Well, he's one he of those guys turning his back to yeah, the defense, yeah. even though it helps that helps him. But he's had success without it throughout his career. What do you, is there something to like? I don't know. Do coaches need to take back some of the power from these like star quarterbacks who are like I don't like doing this. I don't like doing that. Like. With play action, yes. With an RPO, if you're just going to yeah, lose two or three RPO RPOs, thing. maybe. But like Ben not wanting to run play action because he doesn't like taking his eyes off the defense. Rogers not wanting to run motion and stack formations and stuff because he doesn't like messing with the pre-snap picture. Like all these things that quarterbacks have sort of decided that, hey, I don't really like that because it – like do you just have to be like, dude, this is better offense, so suck it up and deal with it. It's a tough balance because like, – If you're f- going to be a Hall of Famer, you might need to be able to deal with taking your eyes off the defense for a split second. As a former professional athlete, Sam, let uh, me just try to convey huh? with you how, how important confidence is okay, and, be, and having conviction, right? So the same thing with so like a catcher puts down signs for me to throw. Yeah. Right? And if I trust – so I, I would throw to a catcher who I trust, and I feel like he put the work in, and I feel like when he calls my terrible slider, right. he knows something. Even though I don't want to throw it, he wants me to, and I have conviction, and I throw it, <laughs> and, and, we're, and we're in tandem. If you don't trust the catcher and if you do, or you don't trust the play caller in this instance yeah. you're not going to have that same conviction so i think there's something to that and i think up until this game say Aaron Rodgers you know i think he had that he was trusting Matt LaFleur up until you know this past game when it was he, they were terrible but those first four games they were in sync and there was trust the five what four games and and it's different and then you feel better about doing something out of your comfort zone so i think that you just find that balance and you have to try to Earn, earn that trust as the coach with the quarterback and make sure that they're confident to answer your question. But this was Steelers, the Titans, the AFC is loaded you, and rolling. So you you posed me a question last night, I think, um, that I answered kind of flippantly and off the cuff, but I actually think it's the right answer. You're like, why do people not block Bud Dupree? Right? Because he's not that good a pass rusher. In fact, he's by far the worst pass rusher that they have as a like actual pass rush. You get a cleanup sack. Right. And uh, the unblock sack. But he gets a ton of sacks, a ton of pressure for a guy that's not that good. Really quick, I want to credit him. He okay. gets a lot of what we consider cleanup sacks, late in the down sacks, pursuit sacks. He's got a good motor. Like he yeah. plays hard and over time you'll you'll stumble into plays. I think our criticism of Bud Dupree has been defeating one-on-one blocks. He not does it good. at a much le- lower right. level than everyone else. And Robert Mays, I think, wrote an article on this and highlighted it, a uh, friend of the show, uh, during last week. And it's like the Steelers blitz with a purpose. They don't, they're not just reckless, right? They right. blitz specifically to ensure that you can't double-team the guys on that line. So Cameron Hayward has been one of the best interior defensive linemen over the past season plus because they've been dialing up this blitz and you can't double-team Cameron Hayward anymore because there's more guys where there's as many guys coming as you can block. So Cameron Hayward is one-on-one all day long, as is Stephon Tewitt, as is TJ Watt. So now when you have three legitimate players to worry about, if you're ever in doubt about which way to slide the line, it's going to be away from Bud Dupree. So he suddenly has all these like free rushers and plays against crappy running backs and, and tight ends and stuff, and he's got a ton of cleanup plays. Are we going to say the same thing about him when he 
hits free agency again this year like we did Matthew Judon you know nice in that system but don't overpay for him as you are oh yeah I, I mean he would be rusher. as a as a guy that hits free agency with some pretty impressive numbers I would suspect I would not want to be paying him big money all right we're going to skip some order here we're going to go Denver Broncos at the New England Patriots this was um just a different feeling in New England this year right I mean you've got a team I think I, I first off I think the Broncos did a fantastic job of having they ran the ball efficiently. Drew Locke had one of the weirdest games you'll see. He made so many really good throws with nothing to show for him. Yeah. Really good throws. Tight windows, giving his guys opportunity. My man Tim Patrick is still awesome. Great snag down the side. Yeah, he had a couple. He is really legit. Um, but Denver overall did a really nice job of just, you know, grinding the ball. But New England's offense, other than the Week 2 game against Seattle, where they, they have one half of looking like a really good explosive offense. They have other parts where they've run the ball well and they've, you know, they they've pounded the opposing defense and all that stuff, but man, they feel limited compared to what they've been in the past, especially the past game. Yeah, but it was on prime time, so it's seared into people's brains as what they are, yeah. which is part of the problem. This, and all it was was Julian Adam was trying to be covered by Jamal Adams and it was a mismatch and Cam played really well yeah, in that game. That was the thing. Yeah, Cam was really good in that game and they found a massive mismatch which doesn't exist most other weeks um this was i think the biggest surprise of the weekend like whatever about page i don't think the patriots are that good this year um so i'm not massively surprised that they struggled against a good denver defense but i didn't see that denver being as effective with drew lock coming in and being the quarterback like if you looked at his numbers before this game they weren't good like he, I think, did it, what do the numbers say now? How many big time throws this week? Is it still six? I think five. Okay. I so think we have almost, with five. Few turnover worth. I mean, he did try to give the game away toward the end. That didn't help. But, um, but he almost doubled his career big time throw total in this game on its own, right? Yeah. He had six big time throws coming into this game and five in this game. And, you know, Brett Rippon in his one cameo essentially against the Jets had four big time right. throws. So, like, Rippon. Had a, had a better, had a way better big time throw rate and a better big time throw to turnover worthy play ratio than Drew Locke did. Like everyone was sort of assuming that, hey, Drew Locke comes back in the lineup, we actually have a viable quarterback and suddenly we're in business again. But the numbers actually said that, you know what, he might not be a dramatically better player than Brett Rippon, albeit one that's probably less likely to throw the ball directly to the opposition. Um, but this was the game where he actually started dealing. And it's weird because anyone that didn't watch the game is not going to appreciate it because you're going to look at his numbers and say, well, Denver couldn't score any points. They had to field goal New England to death. And his passer rating was like 30. So how good could he have played? Like, well, seriously, go watch it. He played a hell of a lot better than any of those numbers are going to suggest. Yeah, the passing stats were horrible, but um, he did make some really nice throws. Um, this was also a game where there was a decision to be made. The Patriots, uh, they needed, they were down 15. They score a touchdown. So you need an eight and a seven. They went for the two early. They didn't get it. Trent Green was very confused and mad about it. Um, but again, I think, you know, it's the right way to go. And it, it almost ended up benefiting them because Denver started throwing them the ball and they knew that they still needed two scores and they changed the game. They kicked a field goal. They got within one score. And, and then they still had a chance for a game ending or game winning touchdown at the end it is interesting how much those sort of former players struggle with this idea right i like just don't so you just have to put work into it I, I, that's all it is 
But like Rich Gannon almost lost his goddamn mind. He had like a little card that he was waving at the camera about when you go for two and stuff. Like he was he was off on one. Oh, um, so maybe he did research. He just he's got different numbers. I don't. I mean, I think he just. If you had, have a card. But he just had like the old card that says you go for two in these specific scenarios yeah. where like, and Trent Green, as you say, was was disgusted at the decision, like ranting against it. I don't. Those kinds of things. Like if the league is clearly changing and pivoting in a direction, would you not maybe, you know, find out? Like, would you not at least question what you're saying, right? Instead of you just, should. if this comes up, I'm just going to rail against it like we're in the 1990s. Like, maybe go, all right, well, let's let's figure out what they're thinking here and just check I'm well, not an idiot before like, I go off on this this rant. Like I said earlier, the tough part is, the good decision is 2% better than the bad right. decision, right? And But it's a binary, this is good, this is bad. So that's where I think you lose a little bit of but it's the just messaging. So, it's so bizarre how uh, like upset they get over this. It's like, this is a terrible decision. And again, it's like we just talked about, like it's it's pretty close either way, right? right. So even us saying, well, this is, it's, a, it's a no-brainer, obviously do this, is a little bit of a silly way of presenting it. But to be so adamant that that's like the, the worst decision you can make is going for two in this scenario is it's bizarre to me. I don't understand why they don't take a beat and I, I just think it's it's just when you learn because I didn't know all of us didn't know this at one point too. All of us right. had traditional thinking at one point and then evolved as we got more information. It's, it's just it's maybe they don't have the information yet. In a lot of scenarios. So I get why you initially think that way and I get why it's processed. But that's why I'm saying like at this point when you see so many of them if you're Trent Green or Rich Gannon, I, don't, I mean, I know you were in the league for a lot of time. You played really well. You were a great quarterback. But like, when you see this going against what you think, would you not like think, all right, why is this happening? Let me just check that there's not something I'm missing before I go off on like a two-minute rant that goes off on, you know, uh, Twitter. Did you hear Chris and Al's discussion last night? They were uh, arguing about it in the hallway, and they talked about it on air. About and Al was on the side of why would you go for two, and Chris was was backing us up in this general go for two so you know and you know so people are still al was very upset okay on, on the broadcast i just want to give credit to the broncos defense pass rushing wise yeah shelby harris ton of plays one led to an interception bradley chubb making some plays i think though from in, in on the back end michael ojamudia and uh bryce callahan both played really well for denver i think from a new so broncos defense played excellent the patriots offense was this just what we thought coming into the season? Our initial thoughts, our prior preseason explanation was Tom Brady struggled last year st statistically because guys didn't get open. Cam Newton's probably not as good as Tom Brady, even at this point in their careers. He's going to struggle passing the ball with the same guys who probably aren't getting open. Um, and that was a factor yesterday. All of that, too. The Patriots haven't really practiced in two weeks, too. Right. Like we have to throw that out there. But... Um, it was, it was a rough offensive performance. I think we're definitely seeing the limitations of having no receivers, which is, it was their problem last year. It's their problem this year. You know, Demir Bird might be their best receiver, and Demir Bird is not good. Right. Um, he's dangerous because he's faster than anybody else they have, but this is not a good group of receivers, and it was a problem for Brady all last season. It's a problem for Cam Newton. Like, your margin for error is so small when this is your receiving group, and if you go up against good corners like they were going up against, at least yesterday. I mean, Ojemudi uh, hasn't played well this season, but he played well yesterday. And Callahan is good. Um, they just they don't have the margin for error for Cam to be off. Like, 
late in the game. He had the, the fourth down play, and he just missed it, right? Like, if your receivers are bad, every one of those throws needs to be perfect. It was it's the thing we talked about for Cam for years, that if you get guys that can't get open, you're forcing him that every pass he makes needs to be pinpoint accurate. And he isn't a pinpoint accurate quarterback most of the time. So your offense isn't going to be good. They got uh, Patriots have the 49ers next week. I'm losing my take that they're just going to beat the bad teams and lose to the good ones. They lost to a team that, on paper, Denver, they shouldn't have lost to. And, uh, you know, credit the Broncos. They played a great game in New England. Again, it's a different feeling. The Patriots don't. That doesn't happen to them in New England historically. Right. They're under 500 for the first time this late in the season since 2002. Uh, Packers at the Bucks. Let's get into this game. The four o'clock game, supposed to be the game of the week. Packers get up 10 nothing, looking dominant early on, dominating time of possession. And then Aaron Rodgers throws a pick six. Two tremendously uh, difficult to explain things this week. One, the performance of Aaron Rodgers. And two, how you end up with a late slate of games, one of which was the Jets against the Dolphins. Two games. I think the NFL just wants to, they want that four o'clock game, certain four o'clock games to feel like a primetime game. They want the whole world. They want to get, they want to, they want to get a good rating, essentially. <laughs> okay. That's what it is, right? I guess. Because it obviously doesn't make sense to make you, to make a hardcore football fan watch nine games in one window. Yeah. And then one game in the second window and, and maybe glance at Jets Dolphins. God. Um, yeah. Th so this, this game on paper, I thought was a good game for Green Bay. Um, and the one thing I was most sure about is that, hey, Green Bay's offensive line has been amazing. They, you, mean, you mean going in, you yeah, thought? Yeah, they, their pass protection has been incredible. Rodgers has been getting the ball out of his hands faster, and that's made that group look even better. And Tampa Bay lost Vita Vea. Like, they're, they're not going to be able to get a ton of pressure. It turns out Rodgers just got buried all game long. Um, he started off okay, and then it's like the pick six broke something in his brain. And from that moment on, he seemed intent on throwing more interceptions. Now, the second one, I don't think you actually blame Rodgers for. But that should, that, yeah, in our world, that falls incomplete. That was a great play. It was a well-thrown slant yes. that the defensive back made a great play on, which resulted in a deflection that landed in the hands of a safety. Like that, you know, in the world of our turnover-worthy play world, that isn't a turnover-worthy play. It shouldn't, it wasn't worthy of ending up as a turnover. Right. It just ended up as a turnover because of a great play by the defense. That one falls incomplete. But 97% yeah, of the time. But he had like more. multiple other plays that were turnover-worthy. Like he threw the ball to Antoine Winfield Jr. who dropped it. That right. should have been a turnover and wasn't. So Rodgers was intent in this game on tossing turnover-worthy plays left and right in a way you just don't ever see him. Like he hadn't had one at all before this game. There was that plus you have Mercedes Lewis wide open up the seam. Missed him. And he missed him. Anytime you have your offensive tackle wide open up the seam, you got to hit him. <laughs> and um, so that was what was interesting about this too. It wasn't just the turnover-worthy play flood from Rodgers. It was his accuracy was off as well. Every compliment that we gave him through four weeks, accuracy's back, decision-making's pristine, all that stuff kind of went out the window in this game here. So something was off after that after that pick six and I don't know if there's a little there's there's just a big body of work of Aaron Rodgers playing really well throughout most of his career but I don't know if there's a little front runner to him right now he's feeling good they're up 10 nothing he throws the pick six and then the second pick even though it's not his fault it's snowballed we don't believe in momentum or anything here but clearly something changed in how Aaron Rodgers played the game after the two picks 
he yeah he he just got rattled um he was also jawing with Ndamukong Sue a lot through the game yeah in a way that you know they were saying the last thing you want to do is make Aaron Rodgers mad but this almost seemed like it was like it, it seemed like Sue was winning the mental battle right yeah like he's he's messing with him he's giving him late shots he's you know roughing him up a little bit after the ball's gone and the two of them are going back and forth and it's like you can see that this is Rogers just getting more and more pissed off and it's not resulting in the like the determined pissed off Rogers that's going to beat you because of it it's it's resulting in this Rogers who's like he's just missing everything trying so hard to like rub it in Sue's face um and then even plays where Rogers was making a play like he hit Devontae Adams up the sideline and Adams just doesn't get his feet in like he's backing up really towards the sideline yeah. throw is exactly where it needs to be and Adams just can't get the footwork right ends up being an incomplete pass like again like everything just sort of was a little bit off for this Green Bay offense plus you lose David Bakhtiari clearly that's going to have a, a an effect on your pass protection just ugh, didn't go well for Green Bay I also th from a Bucks standpoint I mean, those linebackers, Levante David's already one of the league's best in general, but they fly around the field. And then defense in today's NFL, I've, if you guys have been listening to the podcast for a while, I use the word capable a lot because that's essentially all you can ask for on defense is a capable defense. And that is the Bucks in a nutshell. In a given week, with what Carlton Davis brings on the outside and Jamel Dean on the outside, plus the linebackers flying around, they are capable of putting together high-end performances. Their aggressiveness... Their ability to just make quarterbacks make decisions a little bit quicker than they'd like to because they're flying around and blitzing a ton. Uh, Carlton Davis and, and Jamel Dean especially had just a monster game yesterday. So th that was a good performance by the Bucs on the back seven. And then offensively, Brady to Gronk had a little rejuvenation. It did. I thought they, they didn't they didn't play. They didn't have the ball a lot on offense, the Bucs, because of all the way the game flow went. Um, but Aikman was talking about a little bit how this was a little – you've been saying all year is how much of the old Brady comfortable offense is going to be combined with Bruce Arians. This was a Brady ball control offense early and then three big-time throws to Gronk that, you know, created chunk plays and created um, – that flipped the field a little bit. That was a little bit more Patriots offense as far as the style went. And I think that bodes well too. Once Chris Godwin's back – this offense is going to be tough to defend, especially if Gronk has those extra turbos that he can bust out every now and again. It's nice to see a blocking tight end get in the end zone every once in a while. <laughs> that was a really nice catch. It but was. Brady, Brady had three big-time throws, all tight window throws to Gronk. Yeah. And um, if if he's making those plays, plus with Mike Evans and Chris Godwin and Scotty Miller's deep threat and Tyler Johnson had a touchdown and emerging the rookie that we like, that is what people anticipated coming into the year for this Bucks offense, and they're finally all on the field together they Todd Bowles and the Bucks defense also did a really good job of scheming up um the blitz right yeah so it's not that they just won up front but they dialed up blitzes really well and timed them really well like in particular um third down they caused them all kinds of problems with what they were doing like they don't typically generate a ton of pressure on third down but they cause Rodgers all kinds of issues and Rodgers grade uh against the blitz this week was 39. Like yes. Rodgers usually is one of those quarterbacks that will carve up the blitz if you send it at him, but the timing of when they did it and to sort of mess with their tendencies just caused him to have an absolute disaster. And on third down, when they blitzed, his grade was 27. So like every, it just the worst possible time. So even if it 
the overall numbers weren't necessarily as dramatic as you might think in terms of pressure and how much he was under. It's when they were happening. Like they were dialing up blitz on third down that Rodgers wasn't expecting. And it was just almost a complete disaster it's, every time. It speeds up your decision-making. You throw maybe when you don't want to. Um, how much How much do we t- take out of this from Rodgers? Was it, was it just that the four, first four games happened to be the first four games of the season? And it's not this narrative that everything's different. He's better. He's back. Or was he so good that he had to regress and it just all came in one game? Well, as, as our PFF Moo, um, Timo Riska, said they had faced a pretty weak slate of passing defenses yeah. like teams that can cover they hadn't really faced any this was a team that can cover and it went really badly for Rodgers so I think we can probably look at this and say all right the first few weeks was insane it was probably in part a product of how weak the passing defenses they face were but this is probably also like the other end of this this scale like this is the extreme in the other direction that this is not going to repeat too much either this was clearly a day rogers had his first pick six since 2017 it could have like there could have been more you know he does not make those plays in his career he's made a career out of not doing that so for him to have that many of those plays in one game suggests that this is some kind of isolated incident not like a you know inherent flaw in him all right, let's move to the other NFC North team. The Chicago Bears move into 5-1 and one over the Carolina Panthers. Do we underrate the Bears' defense coming into the season? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, the Bears, to quote the late Dennis Green, they are what we thought they were, I think. This is a good roster. You thought they were a 5-1 team? I, no, I think, that they, I think that this is a good roster that will go as far as a massively volatile quarterback will take them. Um, as long as Nick Foles is not the reason they're losing games, they'll win games, if that makes sense. Like, the, the roster is good enough for this team to be decent. I, think, I don't think they're 5-1 and one decent. Um, and I don't think, like, their record at the end of the season will not be whatever a 16-game projection of 5-1 and one is, right? I, I love, words. sorry, I love, we always talk, talked about Jameis Winston as a volatile quarterback and Foles as a volatile quarterback, and we've described Foles as volatile on a game-by-game basis, yeah. 90 here and 30 there. His volatility has all happened within the game and landed with four straight passing grades in the 60s. Yeah. So sometimes that happens too. Right. And if he lands in the 60s every week, I don't know, there'll be enough big plays in there that they could create some offense and the defense, you know, they're relying on the D. It's an ugly 5-1, and one, but it's 5-1. and one. Right. And I think the team is good, right? So as long as Foles isn't an active drag on them winning games, I think they're going to be in shape to, to do these things. Um, their only problem is going to be when you get those one or two games a year where Foles grades in like the 40s. And, you know, I mean, you're not going to win those games. He really he made a really nice touchdown pass to uh, Cole Komet, the rookie tight end out of Notre Dame. Uh, that was part of the story of the game. Teddy Bridgewater throwing an early pick. We talked about the Rodgers interception not necessarily being turnover worthy. That first Teddy Bridgewater one was the same thing. Tipped pass right at the, at the catch point. This falls incomplete. 98, 90% of the, 99% of the time. Uh, Tayshawn Gibson ends up picking it off. I mean, just that play alone completely changed the course of the game because the Bears had that short field for the touchdown. So um, are you going to buy into the Bears at this point? Uh, other, yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm asking the same. Yeah. 
I'm asking the same question again, but right. like what? I just don't want to give. I don't want to give them enough credit. It's a, the ugly five well, and okay. one. Okay, so they because Green Bay lost, they're now top of the NFC yeah. North. So is the question: Will the Chicago Bears win the division? Let me let me just say this. I think I think they are closer to the 2018 version than than their the 2019 version. 2018 is when they won the division. The defense was tough. I can't wait to watch them play Green Bay a couple times. And I think that battle is going to be is going to be fantastic. Uh, they're you know having a guy like Jalen Johnson playing corner the way he is as a rookie. I mean that is to me those are the stories for the Bears. Is the fact that here's the difference between say the Bears and the Vikings. Both teams two or three years ago, especially on defense, were fantastic depth everywhere. And now this year, the Vikings look like they're still trying to figure out what they have, and the Bears have actually found some replacements. And they have guys like Tayshawn Gibson and Jalen Johnson in the back end. Like an overhauled secondary compared to that 2018 team, that's really playing well. I mean, so look, they they are five and one, but they're plus twelve in points differential. That's right. That's what I mean. That matters. The Ravens are also five and one, but they're plus seventy five in points differential, and they got their ass kicked by the Chiefs. Right. right? So like that matters over time. Yeah. Fundamentally, they are probably not as good as five and one. But I do think that that roster is good enough to have them in contention. So I guess I'm buying into them that they're a pretty good team. I think they'll make a wild card spot, but I suspect that Green Bay still wins that division. All right, that's fair. Carolina moves to three and three, and uh, Jeremy Chin with a really nice interception. Still looking for Derek Brown got after the quarterback a little bit better than he had previously, but like you know, they're still still in rebuilding mode. They were wow. I can't believe they got to three and two though. They overachieved, I think, early on. Hmm. The Panthers. They moved to three and three. Let's get to Sunday night football. Los Angeles Rams, San Francisco 49ers. Did this game go as expected? Did we overrate the horrible Jimmy G performance the, the previous week against well, the Dolphins? This is such a weird I mean, both these teams, when you look at like who they've played, is such a bizarre like the Rams' entire win schedule is based off the NFC East. They're four and oh against the NFC East and 0 and two against everybody else the 49ers before yesterday hadn't had a win outside of new jersey their two wins had become had come against the giants and the jets each of whom were winless at that point and they were zero and three in their own building like i don't what i don't know what to make about that at all so i mean yes it was concerning heading into this game that the 49ers had three quarterbacks each of whom had shown terrible play in the last two weeks um on the other hand like the entire rams sort of slate of or the entire Rams record is built on a house of sand in terms of the NFCE so we don't know what to make of them either I guess it just this was one of the more difficult to analyze games because the outside factors in terms of what we're weighing in these teams were so bizarre I think in this one you have I, I just love this matchup all the time Shanahan Sean McVay Everybody thinks of them as good play callers, good head coaches, and all that stuff. The Rams had played such a clean brand of football through five weeks. They had just, and again, NFC East, whatever. But they had taken care of Jared Goff, created open throws. He wasn't missing a ton of throws, but he wasn't making any great ones. This felt, it felt like there was way more on Goff's plate in this one, especially as the game got out of hand. Um, early on, they tried to protect him. And then the Niners, I mean, there were open throws left and right. And Garoppolo was doing a much better job of executing the offense now. Um, I think it just shows, you know, 
you can create off Kyle Shanahan knows how to create offense and I, th I just think he just did he did a better job of that than McVay in the in the Rams offense Kevin O'Connell in this one Shanahan did a really nice job of bouncing back I mean their entire game plan particularly early was based off Jimmy Garoppolo not having to play quarterback like your passes are going to be touch passes at the line of scrimmage it's going to be jet sweeps like we're going to do whatever it is we can do a dot was negative two at one point yeah that's for first, like for a while until they finally took that one shot two yards beyond the first down or beyond the line of scrimmage for the first down on second and three or whatever it was. Like his average at the target for the game was 4.8. They, I mean, this was as protected as you're going to see a quarterback um, in the course of a game. But the difference was this week he was actually able to do that. Like last week, his ankle was so bad that it didn't matter how much you protected him. He couldn't throw. Right. This week, he may have been still gimpy but he was at least capable of executing a game plan that dramatically protects its quarterback in a way that he wasn't the week before and Nick Mullins wasn't able to the week before that. Um, and CJ Beathard just might not be able to, period. This was at least viable. Chris also made the point about Emmanuel Mosley being back and then Jason Verrett Dude, Jason making Marie. some plays. He had that, it was a fourth down interception in the end zone, but it was, it was a really nice play. Jason Verrett's going to end up with an elite grade in here. We need to figure out a way of like, shoehorning extra comeback player of the year awards this season because alex smith needs one right yeah. for his comeback even if he doesn't play another down alex smith should get yeah, comeback should player get of the it. year on the other hand jason verrett has played more snaps now than he has in the last three years i think combined he might if he plays for another couple of games he'll be more than the last four years combined like his comeback is absurd as well and you've got alden smith who was out of the game for five years i know right like and, and there's still people out there that are like, oh, B Big Ben deserves it because he hurt his elbow. Or Cam deserves it because he got a bit banged up. Like, get the hell out of here. Like, those three people are three of the most absurd comebacks the game has seen. We should be able to, like, take away some, like, routine ACL surgery yeah, that I, a guy has come back from and give them to those three. I generally hate the Comeback Player of the Year, of award, comeback player of the year award because we're having this debate. It feels like it should it should be the most feel good story, which right. is Alex Smith. But there's also other ones in Jason Verrett. Well, or this Alden is like Smith. a year where at least two of them yeah. have been nuts. Like, okay, the Alden Smith thing, I think you can park to one side because, you know, his personal demons also led to some pretty ugly things in terms of like legal woes and you know yeah. domestic violence and whatever. So if we want to cut that out for that's not that's not a feel good story necessarily. Um, but the other two are like, as I say, when you compare those to like one day didn't or one year, didn't Philip Rivers win it for just coming back from being bad the year before 2012, he was just bad and 13. He was good. That might've been it. Right. And then he yeah. won comeback player of the year for just not sucking that year. Like when you, that's how you win it one year. And then this year, Alex Smith, who nearly lost his leg might not win it. Cause you've got Jason Verrett coming back or vice versa. I, I was impressed by the anyway by the 49ers defense that was a lot closer to last year's performance than it was um, what they had been doing in recent weeks as well yep um, particularly on the back end all right for our YouTube viewers yeah we screwed up we forgot the Bengals and Colts so we put it right in the magic of video they're back in we podcast listeners ignore me we could have snuck the whole thing in with just uh you know like a little whatever they call those things like a jump cut or a transition or whatever yeah. and you, you they wouldn't have known transition in you Bengals go and, you go and blow the whole game by telling them we're all about uh transparency here hmm. we just tell the truth inside radio inside baseball all right so let's get into it 
the Cincinnati Bengals and the Indianapolis Colts, my initial impression of the Bengals, so they get up to a 24-7 lead. Yeah. And then from that point, the Colts, they win 24-3 the rest of the way, so they end up winning the game. I, I thought the Bengals' offense looked like, you know, people were hoping coming out. This is that, That's the story of this week. They are what we were hoping they were. And T. Higgins is making big plays. Tyler Boyd's working in the middle of the field. A.J. Green might be finishing that late career morph into Larry Fitzgerald possession receiver. Are you basing that off that like one catch? Eh, maybe a couple. It's just like everything's a little bit more contested and yeah, he's moving the chains. Yeah, and... but like you were saying that he's becoming Larry Fitzgerald. In order to do that, you have to be like good at the contested catch stuff consistently and able to make a lot of those catches. Like Green's got like, well, I mean, he's got like a couple of catches in the last three weeks. He's going to be there. Yeah, but Fitz, whatever. I'm just saying... A few different playmakers making plays for the Bengals. Joe Burrow spreading the ball around. But then the Colts came to life, locked down the uh, passing lanes a little bit more. Pass rush got home a little bit more. It was actually not the worst performance by the Bengals O-line that we trash every week. Um, but credit Phillip Rivers and the Colts for battling back. And Rivers made a bunch of pretty nice throws down the field. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the one thing. So this was a good bounce back game from Rivers, right? It's not like it was perfect. There's always a bad throw in there for the Rivers. Dome. He went from outdoors back into the dome. It certainly, certainly they has to help. Opens right? the roof though. Does that? Is it so? It was an outdoor game. They opened the roof. They had the roof open. Do they have? I didn't. I yeah. thought they just had windows at the back end. I think. I think it was open. When I see the sun, I'm assuming that it's open. Yeah. I just know when I picture that stadium in my head, I forget there's a roof to it. I thought they just had like windows at the back end. I, didn't, I could be wrong too, but I'm pretty sure it opened. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but anyway, this was a good bounce back game from Rivers, and this is the kind of game that he. This is what they they're supposed to have, right? This is the Philip Rivers that is good enough for them to win, be productive, have some really nice plays in the passing game, but you, you're never quite sure. You're always kind of waiting for like the bad, um, and there's probably going to be a bad game, a bad throw in there as well. But at least it's not what it was last week, which is so many bad plays it just prohibits you from winning. The other side of things. Joe Burrow is so a, kind of a bounce back game from him in that you know it wasn't a disaster like a week ago, but I think it's it's not time to get worried. But Burrow is starting to show some signs of the weight of pressure that's coming down on him in terms of you can see him now start to take his eyes off downfield and start to look at the rush and start to get a little bit twitchy in the pocket even when guys aren't necessarily getting beat and i just think that there is a i don't know that you can play behind pass protection that's as bad as this for a extended period of time without it having some kind of attritional effect on your play and i think we've just started to see creeping signs that that is now weighing on joe burrow i, I like unless you're Peyton Manning in terms of being so entrenched in the like unimpeachable technical aspects of your game there's no amount of playing behind Tony Hugo will change it I think every quarterback in the NFL eventually starts to get worn down by that level of pass protection and we're starting to see it now for Burrow and this was one of the better games that they played up front yeah so you're saying I mean. it's the residual effect of every single I mean, we described Baker as seeing the rush way yeah. too much and all that stuff. And I don't even know if that's from bad offensive. That's just Baker right. losing his pocket presence a little bit. I think I'm more concerned. When I described Burrow coming out is the velocity on the ball. 
he he had a lot of throws at LSU that were just they were great accuracy, and they get there at the college level. And you know, fans say this all the time. Well, that'll never work at the NFL level. And right. there's an element of truth there. Like, you got to be a little bit quicker, right? Everything's a little bit faster at the NFL level. And that was the game-ending interception from Burrow. Julian Blackman makes a really nice play on the ball. He's making a ton of plays right now. The rookie safety yeah. for the Colts: two picks, four pass breakups in his career through six weeks here. That those would be my concerns. He had a misread through the ball right to the linebacker underneath Burrow, and then he had the Blackman interception. I don't know. Like he's got to be precise in the middle of the field, and we're not always seeing that. That's kind of what I felt about Darnold's arm, actually, is that there were so many of those pe- yeah. plays in college where they just landed in a bucket as opposed to actually showed great arm strength. Um, look, I, I don't want to get too down on Burrow. I think he's played well outside of that Baltimore game, which is basically a no-win proposition when you're dealing with what he's dealing with. Um, and I, I, I don't want to make out like he's the problem, right? Yeah. Of all the problems in Cincinnati, I think Burrow is, even within the offense, way down the list, right? I think play calling, I think uh, offensive line are the two biggest. But I, the big question for this year was, look, he's, he looks really good right from day one, but can he survive playing an entire season behind this offensive line without it having a lasting detrimental effect? This is the first time that I think that's now a serious question because it's the first time that I think you can see evidence of that line play or the line play having an effect on his game. It's cha- it's shaping, it's changing his game in a way that can't possibly be good long term. Definitely something to keep an eye on going forward. I mean, that's for the Bengals, for Bengals fans this season is, you know, watching Burrow's development, watching to make sure that he doesn't get broken. Um, huge game for the Colts. I mean, this... I don't know where the Colts are going to end up going, but they're coming off a disappointing game against the Browns. They're back to four and two, and you have an undefeated Titans team sitting ahead of them. And how hard could it be AFC South? Maybe it's, it's getting more hard. It's getting harder. It's getting harder in the AFC South. It's more difficult, um, but it's just a huge game. And I, I don't know if you're going to look back to this game. It's a Bengals game at home, sure, but you might look back at this game and say, okay, this coming back from this twenty-four to seven deficit is what turns the Colts season around. I like to look at those little pivot points. But it's huge. If they lost to the Bengals and they fall to 3-3 three yeah. and three with the Texans sitting there, uh, Titans sitting there at 4-0, and oh, their division's not completely lost, but it's close. And wild card spots are you know hard to come by in the, in the AFC now. Yeah, so huge really game are. for the Colts. It is. The Colts feel like one of those teams that are going to be bouncing around all season based off the Phillip Rivers game you get. Like if you get the game where he's shot putting late to the flat for pick sixes, right. you're going to think the Colts suck. If you get a game where the Phillip Rivers that they're supposed to get, you know, a few big-time throws, maybe one bad play in the game, otherwise pretty efficient, like the Colts are a good team. They're, they're a little bit like the Bears in that regard. And the rest of this roster is good enough for this team to be a wild-card team, to maybe threaten for the division lead. But how, where they end up on that spectrum is entirely dependent on the quarterback. Xavier Rhodes, ex-Xavier Rhodes, continues to play pretty well this season. I really think the Colts, they lost a little bit of that luster where they had that incredible defense through four weeks of the season. They got crushed by the Browns. Even in this game, you're giving up like .6 EPA in the pass game in the first half against the Bengals here. That's really bad. That's really high. Um, So it's not, they're not on the way to becoming the 85 Bears like it may have looked for four weeks. But um, Indy's one of those capable defenses generally don't give up the big plays got torched by t higgins behind the d but um you know they'll be that middle of the pack type of team that's going to compete in the playoffs 
they're also they miss Darius Leonard when he's not on the field a lot. They do. I don't want to say friend of the show. What's the opposite of friend of the show? Enemy of the show? Colleague? Guy that hates of us? the show? <laughs> so, guy that we've had on the show who was not guest, happy with us? Former guest former of the guest. show. Who, who dislikes when we grade him low. Um, I think he's inter- he's sitting on his grade right now. I think he yeah. knows that if he just sits out a few weeks, he'll be in that top 101. Okay. Well, anyway, they, they miss. When he's not on the field, they miss him a lot. And I think that... In addition, they were definitely a little bit of fool's gold in terms of not as good as they looked early in the season based off their opposition. But they've also been missing Darius Leonard, which makes a major difference to that defense. So I'm going to sum it up by saying pivotal season-changing game for the Colts. Okay. There's two more games to get through. What do we got? (laughs) I don't mean to say it like that, to get through. We're not just trying to play out the slate. Oh, no, we are. But when you have Jets, Dolphins, and Lions, Jaguars, you are a little bit. So there's there's tank for... Trevor Lawrence, let me just say, I told Jets fans, mm-hmm. your game is Saturday at noon. Yeah. And boy, Trevor Lawrence was dealing. He had a turnover worthy play in there. He had a bad one. He had a bad decision. But man, he throws NFL caliber lasers with ease. Lawrence is actually getting, he's getting better. Yeah. Should we just make the Jets review every week? Just the Trevor, the Trevor Lawrence, Lawrence update. He just Lawrence had five touchdowns by the half against Georgia Tech. Really impressive performance. It's funny. I so the very first play, I think it might have been his very first throw in college was like a jump ball to T. Higgins or somebody, and he like scored a touchdown, but it was all the receiver, right? And then I caught like this run of just average Trevor Lawrence, even though he was grading really well, and everyone was like, "This is the best quarterback since Andrew Luck, if not before." Um, and it took, it was one of those ones where you just, you catch a crappy end of, of a guy's play and it warps your perception. So it took longer for me to come around to the Trevor Lawrence thing. Cause I just hadn't seen the high end yet, but the more I watch, like the more it's insane. His high end is nuts. Yeah. He is really, really good. He's, he's got to be the number one overall pick. And if you're the jets, like as crappy as this season is, you're probably going to be cleaning house. Like it, it it's a great situation for you to snag i mean it's the joe burrow thing right you get to grab yourself a joe burrow or a trevor lawrence who could be even better and it changes everything immediately i'm just so proud of you for changing thanks because you never you never come off your initial college football takes i I knew at the time that it was probably not a fair reflection of how he was playing i feel like i'm seeing you evolve this game was depressing as hell by the way um Jaguars too. We'll just we're gonna lump both games into this discussion here. You know, a little bit of the shines coming off of Gardner Minshew. Yeah. Um they're, they're, it's the same thing for them and the Jets looking to the future. The Lions, you mentioned the Lions off air, the Lions schedule in the next few weeks might have them creeping back to what we thought they would be coming into the season, which is um at least a contender. Yeah. At least a team that's gonna compete. Or at least over five hundred. Right, and they'll they'll have a chance to compete in the NFC North. I think that's a, a huge story as Matt Patricia's fighting for his job and maybe the schedule's going to work out well for them. DeAndre Swift went off, the rookie running back for the Lions. Uh, you also, in the back to the Jets and Dolphins game too, you said like the Dolphins, you know, Fitz turned the ball over in the red zone again and there was a butt pick too. Yeah. Remember the first butt pick was Marshawn Lattimore a couple years ago. This is another butt pick. This one was more creative, though. There was more to it than just the ball lands on his ass cheek and he intercepts it. Like, this this required some concentration. That's the, that's the highlight of the Jets' season. Yeah. Butt yeah. pick. Um, no, Tua, Tua no got on the fumble. field. Tua got on the field. Did you see enough of him from the last 227 of handing off the ball to be convinced that they made the right call? He had a 71 grade, so he's 
Perfect. On two throws, mm-hmm. on two passes, right? So he's uh, he's legit. Yeah. That's all I, I needed to see. I still worry about his eye. You talk about him and Burrow are interesting because they don't have cannons. I, right. I know I know two has shown it a little bit, and Trent Dilfer thinks he has a cannon, but I just – I love Trent, but I just haven't seen it. I still wonder him, about right? what he's capable of. Trent with coaches him, though, right? Yeah, Trent overrates his guys just a little bit. Right. I'll tell him that. I'll tell my friend Trent that. I mean, I'm just saying he's not going to be like the dude's – yeah, his arm sucks. Yeah, but Trent goes overboard is the thing. He's Like, he called him Marino, right? I mean, yeah, that's that that's was, too much. That was over the top. To me, Tua reminds me much of Mariota, not just because they're both Hawaiian, but Mariota, super quick release, doesn't really have crazy velocity on yeah. the ball, and I thought that would always come back to, to bite a They both bit. appear – yeah, neither of them has a cannon, but both of them seem to be over the threshold of, like, marginal. Like, they're right. both okay. Well, we'll have more on both of these teams, all four of these teams, as we preview week seven on Thursday. Okay, so this was just quickly the Jets-Dolphins thing, right? Miami obviously win that game. Xavier Howard has a great interception. Um, really nice play. This is like the Dolphins are clearly a better team than the Jets, but nobody had a third down conversion in this game for like most of it. It took until like the I think the end of the third quarter for anybody to convert a third down play. Like Miami jumped back to this massive lead early on, and then it's almost like the ineptitude of the Jets overall just like sank everybody. And you know, eventually, the longer this game went, the more miserable it became for everybody involved. You know, Frank Gore is just trucking one carry after another. That's just God. But like, Miami, they're not bad overall. You don't think so? No. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah it's the Jets. So, like I say, they. It taint the Jets taint everything they touch at this point. Like everybody, you play down to them, but like Miami jumped out to this pretty big lead, commanding early on. They don't look bad. That's a little bit of what we thought too, though. I mean, they made so many changes on the back end that they were they should have been able to compete a little bit more defensively than they did last year. And when you <laughs> there's some sort of there's construction happening at the office here, and when you get into the volatility of your quarterback, Fitzpatrick. Sometimes good things happen. Sometimes bad things happen. Like he had some bad things happen in this game, but it didn't matter because you were playing the Jets. They're three and three and have a points differential plus forty-seven. So even if you throw out the Jets game, they're still way ahead of the Bears. There you go, Dolphins, sneaky good this year. Do not sleep on the Dolphins, as I'm not. All right, man, that's it for today. Yep, Week two more six, games almost in the books. We have a Chiefs Bills preview. Uh, so we've previewed both games on the preview podcast. So mm-hmm. if you're a Chiefs, Bills, uh, Cardinals, or Cowboys fan, go back and watch and listen to the Week 6 preview. Also on YouTube, we have a, the cutout of that, Chiefs and Bills. Uh, but enjoy Monday Night Football. Huge guest coming later this week. Hall, future Hall of Fame. Future Hall of Fame guest. Yes. One of the best players in PFF history. Do Not we fully fact, tease it? or just history, period. Or in history. But PFF history makes it, yeah. All right. Well, a guy we have his entire career graded yeah. at an elite level. Yes. That's exciting. I cannot wait to talk to – Do we tune in Thursday for our future Hall of Fame guests. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back Thursday previewing all of the Week 7 action.